Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're discussing getting around a growing Bay Area while also reducing carbon pollution. The economy is thriving. San Francisco streets are more jammed than ever. New condo towers are sprouting all over the city, and roads are blocked for construction of a new subway, the Transbay Terminal, and a lot more. Is gridlock the new normal, or will traffic start moving again when the construction boom ends? Over the next hour, we will look at personal mobility and the many new choices people have these days, including peer-to-peer car sharing services such as GetAround and new app-based services such as Lyft, Uber, and Sidecar. We're going to have that conversation today in two parts. In the second half of the hour, we'll welcome four guests, including a taxi driver, a Lyft driver, a reporter, and a car sharing executive. First, we'll hear from two transportation experts. Jeff Hobson is the acting executive director at Transform a transit advocacy group based in Oakland. And Tom Nolan is chair of the San Francisco Metropolitan Transit Agency, the government entity that runs Muni and more. Please welcome them to Climate One. So Tom Nolan, let's begin with you. Uh, As the government person here, there's a lot of gridlock in the Bay Area. There always has been. It seems to be a lot more now. When's that going to end? Well, the forecasts on the economy are so strong here. The job creation is amazing. And the forecasts are that within about 20 years, we'll be well over a million people in this city that right now has about 830,000. So the growth is going to continue. I think the question is how smart we are about how we deal with it, both in terms of buildings uh, and transit, transportation options. So what the MTA is all about is trying to look at all the options. We're, We're unique in this country, we believe, uh, that every mode of transportation in San Francisco is actually under the jurisdiction of the MTA. Uh, it used to be a parking commission, a traffic commission, all that. It's all in one place, including bicycles, pedestrians, taxis, all, all of the uh, PCOs, garages, everything is there. So we have an extraordinary opportunity if we deal with each piece of this and try to uh, make it much more uh, uh, transit-friendly city. And my goal is to see that in some time soon, hopefully, that the, last, the very last thing you'll think about when you're going somewhere is getting your own private car because Muni will be so good, reliable, on time, all of that, efficient, bike paths that are safe, uh, 
perceived that way, pedestrian areas that are safe. Uh, that's the goal. That's what we're working for, and to go along with the, the new developments that's coming. And uh, that sounds like what people who advocate for climate change or are concerned about climate change want more density right. uh, because people who walk and bike, they use, emit a lot less carbon pollution. Uh, so is the city really going to make its uh, carbon reduction goals? Well, I think we are. We're, we've actually, in the MTA, I'm pleased, by the way, to acknowledge my colleague here, Joel Ramos, the director, is also on, was part of the Transform staff. Uh, we're, we've, we're working toward that goal already, and we've made a number of, a number of big changes. Market Street's a very interesting one, for example, that 10 years ago, for every one bicycle out there, there were three cars. It's exactly the opposite now, because the, tra- the bicycle improvements are really beginning to make, take hold there in, in that part of the city. So we, you know, it's, a, it's a very complex arrangement. Uh, the MTA office is at 1 South Van S, and in that area, if you're familiar with it's right there at Market, there are going to be three major developments there, and 100 uh, Van S just opened. And we're working with all these developers, and you know, we're going to get some uh, money out of them for what they're bringing to us, you know, the, the population growth that will be there. But uh, it's a perfect place for this development. There are all, a number of muni lines there. The metro is there. Bart's a, a couple blocks away. So that's the kind of development we, we need to have in the city. And we've got a number of things like that planned. I think John King wrote in the San Francisco Chronicle, if there's sort of a main gateway or entry point to San Francisco, it, it is that corner. Uh, Jeff Hobson, is San Francisco doing enough to be bike friendly, to be transit friendly in your case? You advocate for those sorts of things? Well, I think San Francisco is doing a lot and could do a lot more. Uh, so, uh, you know, at Transform, we believe you can't get ahead if you can't get around. Uh, and we want everyone to be able to uh, live in a place where they can afford to uh, get around without having to get behind the wheel of a car every day. Uh, and so we want to see better public transit, better uh, infrastructure for walking and biking, uh, more sidewalks, more bike lanes, um, and we are looking at the profusion of uh, new transportation options uh, coming around here in the Bay Area and around uh, the country and seeing those as a way that we can start making it more possible for more people uh, to get around without driving. So San Francisco's got some uh, good starts on it. We've got uh, the better bike lanes um, uh, that Tom mentioned on Market Street. Uh, Valencia uh, did a... uh, a road diet, uh, which jargon alert, it uh, means taking a four-lane road, making it three lanes with bike lanes, uh, tends to make traffic flow even better uh, and safer. And, and that's working out well. We need to do more of that. Looking around the Bay Area or even the state, who's doing uh, things really well that you think that San Francisco, the Bay Area, ought to, ought to look to for like, ah, that's the way to do it? I think that's... It. It's different for different kinds of improvements that need to happen. Uh, So for transit, I would say here in the Bay Area, we're doing some of of the best things. Uh, Certainly, we have the best transit system west of the Mississippi. Uh, Now, the people who get on Muni and find that it's uh, packed uh, or get on BART and see how uh, busy it is. I came over here, got off at Powell. Do we have the only transit system west of the Mississippi? I'm just trying to think. Denver, I mean... LA is trying to catch up. Okay. We certainly have the biggest <laughs> transit system west of the Bay Area, and I submit that we have the best. I'm, you know, a little bit of hometown pride there going on, uh, but I think we have a lot. We have a lot of good assets, and we have a lot of ways to build on them. Uh, so one of the things San Francisco is trying to do is build some new bus rapid transit corridors on several of the streets that already have 
good transit and could use better transit. Uh, so we need to do more of that, uh, doing some of the same thing in Oakland and San Jose. Need to do more of that. One thing that's happened recently has been a lot of building in, in San Francisco. Uh, you know, Jeff Hobson, has that happened near transit? Is it happening in the right place? I think that's one of the uh, important things that San Francisco can probably learn from uh, some of the other places uh, around the Bay Area. You know, we need to make sure that more people can live close to transit. Um, and there are a lot of good reasons for that. Uh, there are climate reasons for that. There's just quality of life reasons. Uh, I mean, uh, when you uh, asked at the beginning of the show how many people got here uh, on transit, or uh, and then you had the audience asking, uh, hey, wait a minute, I got here by walking, or I got here by biking. Uh, there were more people walking or biking than who drove their own cars. Uh, and that's because of where this is. Because the people who are driving are still outside. They haven't gotten here yet. But that's, <laughs> That yeah. may be one of the reasons. Uh, it's also because this is a tough place to drive to and to park to, and it's a lot more sensible of a place to walk or bike or take transit to. And so if we make more places like these, um, if we make it more possible for more people to live in neighborhoods uh, like these, uh, then we're going to have a positive impact on the climate. And really, it's, it, it's nicer to live in uh, environments like that. Tom Nolan, the reality is that those uh, condos you referenced uh, near Van Ness and Market Street, near BART stations, uh, they're more valuable. They cost more. It, it basically, you've got to pay. You've got to be sure. well off to enjoy this walking lifestyle. Well, I think the city's getting tougher about the whole thing about affordable housing. The Giants Project, for example, recently... Uh, they were at 33% originally. They were going to do 33% affordable housing. Of course, the defi- definition of affordable is widely, you know, very. But uh, Supervisor Kim got involved, and now it's 40%. And the people are talking about that's kind of the way to go. What's been happening is the developers have been required to contribute to a fund to build housing somewhere else. Well, there isn't anywhere else. You know, it, really, the, the ideal, as far as I'm concerned, it, uh, market in Venice would be that there'd be some market, some market rate in some low-income housing, some senior housing, some housing for the disabled, all of that. And, and we can do that. The city can do that. The city can force that. And then it needs to do that. Too many places have been developed with contributing to a fund, but nowhere to, put, nowhere to, nowhere to build it. Right. Uh, you said earlier, Tom Nolan, that your goal is to get people out of their cars, not okay. to think about cars. But the reality is that everybody listening to this, everybody we're looking at right now, has a smartphone in their pocket and all sorts of cool apps that can get any kind of car and any kind of person with any kind of driver to come right away. So when car hopping a car is easier than ever, how are you going to get people out of cars? Well, I think uh, continuing to make it more, as attractive as we possibly can. You know, we're buying like 240 new metro cars, for example, and we, were, we had the uh, opportunity to see a mock-up of one of them the other day. They're going to be much better, much more reliable. Currently, the metro cars break down about every, average every 6,000 miles. The new ones will be almost 60,000 miles. That alone will make a difference. We're hiring 248 new drivers and mechanics to keep, keep the system going. So I, I think... I want to thank the people of San Francisco who voted for Prop A last year, $500 million. It's the first big proposition like that we've had in a long, long time. And then Prop B, another $26 million there. This all adds up, and we're putting it to good use, buying new equipment, uh, making the system more efficient for everyone, and make it more attractive. Uh, you know, I'm on the Caltrain Joint Powers Board as well, and what we find is we survey our riders, and a lot of young people are riding in large part because they can bring their bikes on it. Uh, bicycles are extremely popular on Caltrain. We carry more bikes on a daily basis than any, any, uh, any uh, commuter rail in the country, and we want to do more. 
And they also cite the reason for taking the train is an environmental concern, concern about global warming. They're doing their part. And I'm hopeful that that'll be the case with more and more people, that they, you'll, do it, you'll get on the bus because it's there, it's better, and it's the right thing to do, and you keep another car off the road. It's also a cultural thing. Some of our yep. Climate One staff here, they ride their bikes, they, they like it, they feel good, it's part of the culture. Uh, uh, Jeff Hobson, is San Francisco spending that half a billion dollars in the right way? Well, I think they're making a lot of uh, good investments, and uh, that's uh, an important thing to do because I think one of the things you talked about, the, you know, the smartphones and how there's this really explosion of different ways of getting around. Uh, and I think it's important for uh, San Francisco and the rest of the jurisdictions around the Bay Area to plan for a future in which there are uh, this growing uh, number of different ways of getting around. And that's a good thing, uh, particularly for the climate, uh, because right now, most people who own a car own it, and they own it as sort of a bulk item. Um, and you spend six, ten thousand dollars $10,000 a year uh, on your car. Um, as we move from a cars as a bulk commodity to car trips as an individually purchased thing, whether that's in a taxi or a ride hail app, or uh, that you decide that you're going to do bike share, uh, or that you're going to ride transit, when transportation is that per-use thing, I think people are smart. People are going to use the right option for the right trip. And how about, let's talk about cost of some of this stuff. Um, we need more infrastructure. This half a billion dollars is, is a start. Uh, Tom Nolan, the st- city still needs to put a lot more in place uh, from this aging infrastructure. Uh, are people going to cough up more money for that? Well, I think they will, especially when they start seeing some results of their vote. Uh, when, the 500, when these new cars start rolling in, you'll see it right away. I mean, it'll make a big difference. And new buses are coming. Our fleet is very old. I think when they see that, and they see the plan. The mayor had a blue uh, ribbon task force that uh, said we need about $10 billion over the next 20 years and identified around $6 billion eventually. And some of that requires, will require votes of the people. But I was very heartened by it this past year, that, that vote. Uh, and uh, we'll see. Hopefully we can produce results as quick, quickly enough so that when there comes another one, you know, Supervisor Wiener wants to bring the vehicle license fee back in lieu of that Prop B from last year. Uh, which so that's re- potentially the ballot in 2016, having a, pr- a measure to well increase be. registering a car in San Francisco. It could well be. That's the thing that Schwarzenegger, you know, he, when he became governor, got him into office. Got of, yeah. yeah, got rid of that. And it's a relatively He's, small amount of money, and it could do an awful lot of good. And that'd be more permanent uh, and reliable source of funding than Prop B is. Although we're very grateful for Prop B. Uh, Jeff, also, do you think that the money's going to be there? The voters are going to step up. I think that. The history in the Bay Area, in any case, shows that when uh, agencies make a good case uh, for transportation funding, uh, that voters vote for it. Uh, in, uh, I happen to remember the stats from 2000 to 2004, uh, Bay Area voters passed uh, almost 10 different transportation measures that raised a total of $17 billion. Uh, most of those all passed by a two-thirds or more uh, margin because of the rules we've got here in California on taxes. Uh, But so I think that when agencies can make a good case, voters uh, will vote for it. Another example uh, that hopefully uh, will be coming on the 2016 ballot is BART. 
uh, looking to put a measure on to improve uh, the cars. I don't know if anybody's noticed that BART cars are occasionally a little bit dirty, um, and they're kind of packed at rush hour. Uh, So this would pay for, uh, we hope, uh, and we're part of the groups trying to uh, push on BART to make sure it's a good measure and that it has the right sorts of things in it. But investing in the existing system, making the cars better, making them cleaner, making it possible for them to run more frequently uh, so that basically BART can carry more people. Uh, which clearly people in the Bay Area want to be riding, more, peop- more and more people want to be riding the train. That, that brings up an issue that the Bay Area is facing. You know, we have 27 transit agencies in this, the nine-county Bay Area. That's an awful lot of transit agencies. You know, and I've been a regionalist for a long time. There have got to be ways of more and more effective cooperation, uh, collaboration among these agencies. I mean, they all, everybody buys the same kind of stuff, you know, fuel and all this. And why... We need to get a sense of urgency about this and really work closer together. The Clipper cards, are good. You know, that's a good thing. That needs to go farther than it is right now. But uh, you know, I guess I'd say that in, in light of the fact that Congress, we, we, can, we can expect almost nothing from this Congress. And you know, with, with the conference of mayors being in San Francisco this week, there's been a lot of talk about local government really being the drivers of innovation and change. Uh, and that's really true, as Jeff was saying. The money is coming from the local way more. You know, our, we're doing our part. We need the feds and the state to step up. You're just joining us at Climate One. We're talking about getting around the Bay Area with Tom Nolan, chair of the San Francisco Municipal Transit Agency, and Jeff Hobson, acting executive director of Transform. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, one more BART question, which is uh, there's talk of another tube for BART, perhaps going to Alameda. Uh, talk about coughing up uh, some big bucks. Uh, it took 30 years for the last one. Tom Nolan is going to take another 30 years to get another BART tube? <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. Uh, I mean, some of the business groups say we can't wait that long. Well, yeah, actually, the business community is very strong. The Bay Area Council, the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, right. San Mateo County Economic Development Association, they're very supportive. You know, uh, So I, I won't take 30 years. It'll take a while. It'll take a while. <laughs> I don't know if you have another perspective on that one. It, decades would be my guess. Is that right? I don't know how many. Yeah. Let's go at our, to our uh, lightning round. I just want to ask a quick uh, yes or a no question. Uh, Tom Nolan, San Francisco should build more parking garages, yes or no? <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. Tearing down the 280 freeway in Mission Bay will have unintended consequences. Tom Nolan, yes or no? Yes. <laughs> uh, Some of them good. Some of them good, some of them not so good. Uh, it's one of the mayor's new things, tearing down freeways, tearing down more freeways. We're tearing down dams, we're tearing down freeways. We're, what are we doing around here? Okay, um, Jeff Hobson, San Francisco planners should have seen gridlock coming when they improved thousands of new housing units. Yes, and they did. I, I don't see evidence of that, but okay. Uh, okay. Uh, barrier roads are going to get more crowded, not less, Jeff Hobson. Yes. Okay, that was easy. Uh, how do they do for the, for the lightning round? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Keep an eye on hello. Um, bike sharing, Tom Nolan, uh, it started off here. Uh, is that going to expand? Pretty cool thing. It is, yeah. We've uh, approved, I think it's 5,000 5, new bikes, is that right? Yeah. Uh, for the Bay Area, San Francisco get most of them, but they'll be in Oakland and Redwood City uh, as well. So, yeah, that's a very good thing. Uh, Jeff Hobson, is that something that makes a real dent, or is that really, does it displace cars, or is it just like, oh, I'll you know, walk, you know, I would have walked otherwise, but I'll, I'll roll a bike? To me, bike sharing is part of the whole universe of 
having lots of options. That's what you really need to do to be able to live a full, vibrant life uh, without a car. Uh, you know, U.S. cities were mostly built with the assumption that uh, most people would have a car. And we are in the process of reconstructing our cities, rebuilding how we live our lives in ways where we don't have to have a car. So bike share is one of the options that I want to have, that I want my kids to have, that I want my mom to have, um, to be able to get around uh, in the city, to go along with all of the uh, uh, different other options. Is how many individual bike share trips are going to replace a car trip? Probably not that many. Uh, that's the evidence from bike share uh, in other parts of the world, other parts uh, of the country. But I think it's one of those things that has to be a piece of making it possible to have a, a full life uh, without having a car. And I think it's really important with bike share as well as all of these other sharing uh, kind of apps uh, and services that are uh, coming into existence, we need to make sure they work for everyone. Um, and too often, uh, when these services start, they are mostly pitched, particularly when they start just being run by private companies, they start being pitched at the high, income of, high end of the income scale. Um, and that's something that we need to fix. That's something that public policy has a lot to do with. That's something where MTA, uh, uh, Tom's uh, agency, and the other agencies that control transportation in the Bay Area need to put a focus on is making sure that whether it's bike share, you make sure that you have pods uh, in low-income communities, that you make sure that you do outreach um, uh, in places, not just in Starbucks, uh, 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 but you do them uh, in uh, the communities uh, where we want to make sure that they get used. So that's, that's an important part of, of bike share as well as the other sharing economy. I was walking down the street the other day when there was a very well-dressed gentleman, uh, looked like, I thought, Wall Street, right? And I was surprised, my jaw dropped actually, where he walked over, hopped on a bike share and pedaled off. I was like, whoa. Because there's a certain cultural thing. I mean, I've taken the bike share and feel a little dorky downtown, like, oh, I look like a tourist, you know. <laughs> um, but you get over that after a while when you, you start to see other people doing that. You say, hey, that's like me. That's okay. Friends who work in D.C., um, where uh, uh, Capital Bike Share has been for a few years, um, I was just talking with a, a friend who used to live here in the Bay Area, uh, been in D.C. for a while, and he said it has changed the way uh, he gets around. Yes, sometimes it replaces his uh, a 10-block walking trip that he might have taken. It also extends how far he can go without having to, uh, without having to get in a vehicle of some kind. A trip that might have taken two transit trips, a, uh, a bus and the subway or something of the sort, he can take uh, a bike share to go across town. Really, I think of it as expanding our transit service um, by having people provide, people get to provide their own motor uh, instead of having to ride somebody else's motor. And burn a few calories along the way. Uh, Tom Nolan, uh, dynamic pricing. We live in a world of dynamic pricing for, for all sorts of tickets. Uh, we're going to see that, and, and it, it's happening now in parking. It costs more in certain hours of the day to park downtown San Francisco. How is that shaping behavior? Well, actually, it's considered very successful, the whole, the whole system. You know, we have more uh, vacancies. The whole idea of that was, you know, the great turnover, so the vacant places. People have to go circling around blocks, looking and looking. And our, our studies have shown that it's been very successful in that regard. Uh, beyond that, I'm not sure where, you know, where we're going to go with, any, with that. 
If you're just joining us, we're talking about getting around the Bay Area at Climate One. Our guests are Jeff Hobson from Transform and Tom Nolan from the San Francisco Metropolitan Transit Agency. Let's go to our audience question. Welcome. Hi. So you mentioned the number of different transit agencies that are present in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of um, problems that happen because these are not necessarily the best integrated. For example, if you're trying to go from the Caltrain to the airport, then you have to take two BART trips if you're in uh, during uh, working hours. And so is there any talk of forcing some transit agencies to either merge or work together more closely to remedy some of these issues? Tom Nolan? The the last big attempt like that was made by Senator Becky Morgan from uh, Los Altos years ago, and it got watered down and watered down to a point where nothing really happened. She was trying to see if MTA, MTC, the Association of Bay Area Governments and the Air Quality District could all merge and it got watered down to a point just for planning, and it was killed because of the regional, the local opposition to it, because people wanted their own agency, their own thing. It, it's, a worth, it's a worthwhile goal, to, uh, in my mind, to get agencies working closer together. Uh, and I, there's, some, there's some signs of it, but we could use a whole lot more than that. Nobody wants to give up the authority. One woman who was a, a council member in, in the San Mateo County told me during that debate about Senator Morgan's bill, that she was against it because it would, it would kill her chances of becoming chair of the, MT, of the MTC. I mean, it was that venal. I mean, you'd think local couldn't... But that, you know, that's a tough one. But I think if the... You, know, you need a sense of urgency about it, a sense of crisis, a sense of leadership. People will come forward and say, yeah, we can, we can do a whole lot better than this. I it, hope we do. Is climate change cuts across so many things, yeah. food, water, it, it, it affects regions and humanity in such broad ways. Will climate change force some of that parochialism to I, go away? I think it'll help. I hope it'll help that. You know, we had the... Uh, the good stu- thing about climate. Okay. We had the study, <laughs> the study recently about the, the waters rising, you know, the map of the Bay Area, you know, uh, with climate change, what's going to happen, what's going to be under, under, underwater and all of that. And we've got so much more in common uh, with our neighbors than divides us, than loyalties to different counties and cities and these different transit districts. Uh, but I, I can tell you that from the Caltrain, you know, the three counties involved in that, Santa Clara, San Francisco, and San Mateo, and that's extremely difficult to even hold it together uh, because everybody comes in with their own interests and trying to get folks to rise above the very narrow interests is, is, is hard, but not impossible. Tough to get kids to share their toys in the sandbox. <laughs> Let's go to our next question. During commute hours, BART cars are pretty full and the trains are coming by pretty rapidly. It's hard for me to imagine BART increasing its commute hour ridership very much. Is, is BART near its limit or no? You're, you guys are more involved with the BART issue. Sure. Uh, Jeff Hobson? Yes, I think that uh, BART does have a capacity to increase, to increase its capacity significantly uh, during commute hours. There are a few things that they can do. One of the most important is having all of the trains that come through actually be 10-car trains instead of 8 Nine, um, that would make a difference. Uh, they need a new train control system, jargon alert, uh, that can make the trains be able to go more quickly through the tube. Right now, they have to keep a certain amount of spacing so they don't run into each other. Um, with a better control system, they can uh, uh, run them more quickly. The new cars are going to have three doors instead of two doors uh, on each one. That'll make them quicker to get on and off and get in and out of the stations quicker. So there are a variety of things that BART uh, can do. They're considering... Uh, putting uh, uh, exits on both sides of the Embarcadero and Montgomery stations, having you be able to get into the trains from both sides instead of just from one side. So there are a variety of things that BART can do to run more people, to be able to move more people uh, through San Francisco. 
We have to end this portion there with our thanks to Jeff Hobson, Acting Executive Director of Transform, and Tom Nolan, Chair of the Metropolitan Transit Agency in San Francisco, for talking about how we get around a crowded Bay Area. Let's thank them both for this. Thank you. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Here's one trend that could help to reduce urban gridlock. Studies show that the number of young adults with a driver's license is on the decline. There could be any number of reasons that teens have lost interest in getting their wheels. But when Sunil Paul, the founder of Sidecar, was here in 2013, he blamed the smartphone. In the past, the automobile was your key to freedom, your literal key to freedom. You got those keys, and now you could go out and do stuff in the world. But today, you know, my almost 12-year-old's They've got freedom already. They can talk to their friends. They can have a social life. They don't have to be stuck with their dad all the time because they've got a smartphone. So it's already unlocking a different kind of freedom and mobility. And I think that even when you take it to the point of, oh, okay, I really do need to be able to move around in a city, and I really do need to be able to get groceries, Mm -hmm. and I really do need to be able to get to a job, all those That was Sunil Paul, CEO of the ride-sharing service Sidecar. Now back to Greg Dalton and the second half of our live program at the Commonwealth Club. Welcome back to Climate One. We're talking about how we get around the Bay Area in the era of climate change. I'm Greg Dalton. And now we're joined by four other guests to talk about how we roll in the Bay Area. Shakib Ayadi is a board member of the San Francisco Taxi Workers Alliance. Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez is a reporter with the San Francisco Examiner, and Pat Murphy's head of business development and public policy at GetAround, a car sharing service, and Ozzy Arce as a driver with Lyft. Please welcome them to Climate One. So Joe Rodriguez, uh, paint the picture for us here. We got a crowded city, lots of cars on the street. Uh, Is transit getting around the city and the Bay Area going to get any easier anytime soon? Well, at least here in San Francisco, we're seeing Muni improve vastly with the new uh, Muni Forward program. They have a a 7% service improvement, which I I think is one of the biggest service improvements they've had in years. We have increased service through these uh, uh, new ride hail apps. Folks would uh, fillet me live if I said ride share, some folks. Um, He's sitting over there. Yeah, yeah. no, he's looking at me. (laughs) He's giving me that look. And and, And we still have our taxi system. So are things getting more crowded? Yes. If we don't continue moving forward, are many planners and many people in transportation saying we're headed for trouble? Yes. But are things moving forward? Yeah. Moving forward slowly. Uh, (laughs) uh, Pat and Murphy, um, your company, Get Around, is partly based on the premise that there's too many, there's car overpopulation. So what are you doing to address car overpopulation? Yeah. So basically uh, what Get Around enables you to do is if you own a car, you can uh, basically turn it into a car share vehicle. So uh, you, we have something called Get Around Connect uh, that turns your car into a connected car. So when you're not using it, other people can use it in the same way they would a traditional car sharing vehicle. So they just download our app and they can find it, rent it, and lock it all from the app. So while you're not using it, your car is uh, helping pay for itself and make yourself a little bit of money. And um, it enables someone in your neighborhood to uh, basically get around without having to buy another car and put it in the already, as you mentioned, overcrowded uh, infrastructure. And and the underlying uh, principle of this is that a car is a hunk of metal that most people 
by and it sits around most of the time, not being used, right? It's an idle asset sitting there depreciating in your garage. You know, it's beautiful, it's nice, you're, you're proud of it, but it's sitting there depreciating, costing you money even when you're not using it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, most people use their car less than 25% of the time. So um, what the, the research on, on car sharing is pretty um, compelling. It basically shows that every, uh, every car share vehicle can potentially eliminate 9 to 13 other cars from the road. So Getaround's um, kind of aha moment is pretty simple, right? We have about 250 million personal automobiles in the U.S. If we convert a fraction of those vehicles into car share vehicles, we can, we can uh, take an, a pretty huge number of them off the road and put a pretty significant dent in our uh, collective carbon output. Put a dent in Detroit, too, but we'll get to that later. Um, uh, Chakib, I want to ask you about there's lots of choices for getting around these days. Isn't that a good thing for people? Uh, well, it's a good thing to have a lot of choices and options, and uh, we want all those choices will be uh, good for the customer, for the public, for to serve uh, the community and uh, for public safety. But we don't want to put more cars in the road because that create uh, pollution in our air that we breathe and that can uh, create asthma or some disease, and we don't want that for our community. And so you believe that Uber, Lyft, sidecar, that's putting more people on the, more cars on the road, more people inside cars. Is that right? Well, yeah. Uh, there is a Lyft representative. Uh, he claimed that they uh, just put tens of thousands of vehicles on the road and that create congestion, obviously, and create air pollution. Ozzy, Arce, you're a Lyft driver. Uh, you, you do it full time. Do you think that Uber and Lyft are putting more cars on the road in the Bay Area? I believe that the, uh, there are being more cars put on the road, but I also believe that it is up to the passenger themselves uh, to dictate or have better judgment on when they're going to decide to use the uh, Ride Hill app service uh, as opposed to using the bike or having to walk. Um, I think that's a, a big part of why there need to be more cars on the road is because um, we are the ones that are depending on those cars now. Joe uh, Fitzgerald uh, Rodriguez, I want to ask you, uh, what do we know about, what does the research say about uh, car sharing, ride sharing, the, these new app-based hail services? Is it putting more cars on the road, more pollution in the air? Well, I think that the research everyone goes back to when you ask that question is, is from Susan Shaheen from UC Berkeley, right? But that particular study doesn't necessarily look at the, uh, these uh, new ride hail apps specifically. The jury is still kind of out on these. Uh, that looks more at like ride sharing, this kind of older style of ride sharing, right? But when we're looking at these kind of ride hail apps, uh, research from both sides will tell you different things. As a reporter, it can be you, know, you have to you have to hedge a lot as you're writing because there's folks even today. Even today, I was just reading a filing from uh, Uber uh, to the uh, California Public Utilities Commission, who are saying, "Hey, we take so many cars off the road. We do X, Y, and Z. We're really helping the climate." You've, you've got to make sure that we get as many cars off the road as we are doing. But then you see the taxi uh, folks filed a similar thing to the CPUC, which said the exact opposite. Our studies show that uh, people who are using the ride-hail apps uh, would have taken the bus, they would have walked, they would have biked, that they would have taken a taxi, they wouldn't necessarily have driven, so you're not taking cars off the road. You've got competing research from both sides. Pat Murphy, you're uh, not directly competing with uh, Uber, Lyft, et cetera, but your take on sort of this, this uh, sure. dueling research, we don't really know what the facts are. What we know is that it's powerful, right? Um, I think if, if you start with the premise that we have too many cars, 
and that personal car ownership, particularly in a city like San Francisco, is silly. Um, I think that's a good starting place. So if, <laughs> if you look at, first of all, get around um, an Uber and, and, and Lyft and Sidecar, which I think almost every human in the city calls ride-sharing, um, <laughs> is completely compatible. So the, the way that I try to look at it, and I think that, that makes a lot of sense, is if you look at the portfolio of use cases that justify you owning a car, if you can get rid of 100% of those use cases through other sustainable options, if that's you know, walking, hopefully, uh, using bike share, using public transit, using Uber, using Lyft, using GetAround, I think that's really what we're looking at. If the enemy is unnecessary personal vehicle ownership, then certainly the, the abundance of choice is not a bad thing. And the fact that you are seeing more and more Lyft vehicles and more and more Uber vehicles doesn't necessarily mean that it, it is, a, is a net negative for, for pollution, right? This, you're looking at a higher utilization of vehicles across an increasing uh, number of people. So it, and you already see in these innovative ride-sharing companies, it's not my job to carry their water, but I will, um, they're already innovating one step further in, in coming out with Uber Pool and Lyft Line to put more people in those cars rather than less so that the, the number of trips are actually shared by you know, more people rather than you know, on a one-off basis. So uh, GetAround actually I, you know, fits really well into this piece because if, uh, when we survey our folks, actually, they say it, that the combination of public transit, uh, ride-sharing, and GetAround enable them to live, live car-free. So we take care of that you know, 20 to 30% of the time when you, you really do need a car to go pick up some groceries or head out of town for the weekend where public transit, bike share, or, or an Uber wouldn't make any sense. How does this affect car makers? Big part of the American economy. Is that going to hurt the economy? If we, what I hear you saying, Patton, yeah. Patton Murphy, is fewer cars used more frequently. That spells bad news for Detroit. Well, it spells bad news for Detroit in the old model, maybe. I, I, think, I think looking forward, the reality is we have too many cars right now in America. We have too many cars worldwide. Um, the, you know, get around can't exist unless people own some cars, right, uh, currently. So, so I, think, I think what it means is, it, so if you have a car on get around right now and you share it, on average, our, peop- our owners on get around are making about $500 a month. Some people make $1,000, $1,500 a month. So if you're an automaker, certainly if you look at it kind of initially and say, okay, well, these guys are trying to reduce overall personal vehicle ownership, sure, that, that doesn't look great. But if you look at it from another lens and say, if you can make $10,000 a year sharing a car, what it means if you're, you know, if you're Ford or if you're Audi or if you're Tesla, it means that all of a sudden you can afford a higher quality, cleaner, uh, more fuel-efficient vehicle. So we actually have Tesla owners on, on GetAround who are making two to $3,000 a month. You can go out and lease a, um, a Tesla right now for $999 a month, which is pretty expensive for most middle-class Americans. But if, if you're looking at the future where... There are no more middle-class Americans, by the way. <laughs> well, another, just letting you know. Another, well, even $1,000 $1, a month is pretty rough for a middle-class venture capitalist, right? So if, <laughs> it, but if you can make $2,000, $3,000 a month by sharing that, that actually, for, for automakers, it means that they can sell higher, higher quality, higher premium vehicles. And those are ultimately the cars they want to they sell. So I think we're actually quite aligned. Um, Ozzy Arce, uh, want to hear your story on this. You're actually uh, not planning on being a Lyft driver forever. You have other ambitions, but this is providing a good job for you right now. Yeah, yeah. This actually gave me a really good option um, in order to raise funds to be able to push myself forward uh, through either college or uh, now post-college. 
Um, I always joke around with passengers and tell them that if Lyft and Uber were around when I first started college, everything would have been much different. Um, but uh, I, I, I definitely do see the change. Like uh, when I first came here, I I'm, I'm, came from San Diego, actually, um, seven years ago. And uh, I came here with a car. I, uh, I had just gotten my car about a year in, uh, into high school, and I, I came here with it, and I realized within two years that I was paying for a car that I didn't even use, that I never really needed. Uh, it was just sitting in the car, and I was just paying for it. So I decided to get rid of it, and I, by then I had options like Muni, um, biking was also another option. Uh, Uber and Lyft were non-existent at the moment either. Um, and, and, and I got used to relying on those things rather than an Uber or Lyft. And even now when I need to handle some business in downtown, like I'll still take public transportation just because that's what I got used to. Now you got people coming into the city um, with habits like I probably came with from San Diego that didn't, you know, we, we come here with, we, we take our car everywhere. We take a ride, even if it's two, three blocks to the street, we take it that way. Now you come here to San Francisco and you're still offered that option, you're obviously going to still keep that habit. Um, so again, it goes back to people themselves and how we monitor our options. Joe Fitzgerald, what you guys? May I say, not just coming from a reporter perspective, but as someone who's born and raised in the city, I didn't own a car until I was 22. Did, did not own a car, did not even drive a car. I had to get my license then. Because like, it's just such an alien thing to grow up in San Francisco and need a darn car. You got Muni. You can bike. You can walk. A lot of my friends, we just walk everywhere. And it is so convenient. And San Francisco is finding it more convenient, too. We're finding now that the major mode is all alternative forms, and drivers who commute are like 24% uh, alone and then in the carpool, then make up about just under 50% of the city. So it's, it's, a, it's a trend that's moving. I got a 15-year-old kid. I want you to come over and talk to him about not needing a car and drive. Okay, I'll, uh, thank you. You're, you're, you're hip. He'll listen to you. Um, um, Red hair, it does it, yeah. Uh, Joe, uh, has the taxi union made taxis more powerful in the, in the city? Powerful in what way? Politically? To, to defend uh, their industry, their jobs, their livelihood? Well, you would think if they're politically powerful, then, um, I mean, they, they are somewhat, they have some political power, not our present company excluded. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, there was just, funny that you mentioned it, a protest today in front of uh, Uber headquarters. The U.S. Conference of Mayors that, you, uh, uh, that was mentioned earlier, I believe, um, is in town, nearly 300 mayors visiting San Francisco. And they're all, that, co- that conference was sponsored by Uber, those mayors are going to go visit Uber headquarters today, and those folks were outside protesting. They're outside protesting all weekend, a little group of, of, of taxi drivers with signs. And I don't know, there's five or ten of them outside uh, rallying. I'm not sure anyone talked to them or heard them. And then as far as the, at the SFMTA, they're there at the board. I'm sure um, uh, the board members at the SF, SFMTA could tell you are there just about every week pushing for their policies. Sometimes they win as with a recent win to uh, uh, exempt taxis from uh, being kicked off a market street, but Uber wanted to also be included in that exemption. Uh, They did not win that, Uh, and sometimes they lose. Chucky Baidi, what do you want from the regulators in San Francisco? Do you want Uber and Lyft to go away? What are you asking for? What does the taxi drivers want? 
Well, actually, we want them to uh, be regulated, have the proper registration and the proper insurance for uh, the safety of the public and uh, the bicyclist or pedestrian. We, we want them to make sure that those drivers are professional, they know their way around, they pay their taxes, and uh, they pay for the taxi stand. And we want the city to know how many number exactly are out there because uh, they, they are limited in the streets and... Uh, that creates a lot of traffic and a lot of congestion. Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez, there is a state law requiring a million-dollar insurance uh, this summer. Uh, the state passed a law so that Uber and Lyft and Sidecar have to have a million-dollar commercial uh, liability. Uh, farmers Insurance now has a rider that people can buy as 8% to your premium if you own your car and you're doing Lyft or Uber on the side. So the insurance question is being addressed. How about some of the other concerns that the taxi industry wants? There, there are so many concerns, and right now I've been, I've been reading them most of all today, uh, from, from the California Public Utilities Commission, all the newest filings that just came in just today, filled with a litany of concerns. Actually, the SFMTA, the uh, Municipal Transportation Agency here in San Francisco, filed a uh, litany of concerns of things that they would like to see change statewide in regulation of Uber, among them uh, deeper criminal background checks. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, Syed Musafar, the man who drove for Uber and uh, uh, hit that poor little girl, the six-year-old girl, Sophia Liu, on New Year's Eve two years ago when she died. Um, when she was hit and killed and, and died, um, her family still hasn't had a payout from Uber. Uh, Syed Musafar um, also was found to have a criminal background in Florida. Uh, the police report that I obtained from Florida showed that he was driving over 100 miles an hour into oncoming traffic with his family in the back seat. Now, there is a question as to whether or not criminal background checks should stop people for driving. You know, people uh, with, uh, ba- uh, with criminal backgrounds are, are often uh, uh, committed prejudice against and can't get jobs. It's hard for them to keep, keep jobs. But there is a question about whether a man who drove a car 100 miles an hour into oncoming traffic on a Florida highway should be able to drive uh, for Uber. Now, one of the reasons that we found when doing this investigation, and a few different news outlets also did this investigation, um, they, that he was able to uh, clear that background check, was Uber's background check is, by law, only allowed to search, I believe, seven years. Uh, the FBI criminal background check that runs through the Department of Justice which the cab drivers need to use through the live scan system, goes back 100 years into all sorts of jurisdictions. Right now, Uber and, the, and taxis and other agencies are debating which system is better. Are there advantages to using the private background check system? Are there advantages to using the Department of Justice system? And that's a debate that's going on right now. That's a huge one. Do you ride Uber and Lyft yourself? Uh, I ride every mode of transit in the city for research as a reporter. When I use things personally, um, I use uh, uh, Muni. Would you put your child in an Uber or a Lyft? There's actually a really interesting question about that right now. The SFMTA is asking the state to uh, have tighter restrictions uh, around uh, minors riding Uber and Lyft, that very thing you're asking. Would I put my child in Uber and Lyft? I don't have a child, so I'm not sure what risks I would take. Fair enough. Uh, Ozzy Arce, you have uh, studied criminal justice. Do you know whether you've got a criminal background check to, to, um, to drive Lyft? Did you know they did one on you? Uh, yeah, yeah, they did. It actually takes a good, like, four or five days for you to get a response back. 
on that uh, criminal check. Um, I actually just referred my girlfriend about a week ago, and she's still waiting on her background check uh, response, too. Hope so. it comes back okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. We'll find out. <laughs> hey, honey. <laughs> I want to thank him, by the way. He, uh, he picked me up last night, I mean, in, in a lift. Um, and uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, and uh, I... Co- uh, coerced him, talked him into doing this, so he's been a real support doing this. I want to go to our uh, lightning round and start with, with Ozzy, uh, and this is a quick answer uh, to the lightning round. Lyft drivers offer mints because they often don't know where they are going, true or false? They offer mints, candy, they offer... Oh, because they um, don't know where they are going. <laughs> um, I'm actually uh, against doing the extra service on the left, right, just because, again, it's just for what it's for, you know, it's not yeah. necessarily. Um, but, yes, there are there so, are a lot of people that do. So that's a yes. <laughs> um, many, this is a yes or no, true or false, many Uber and Lyft passengers don't fully understand the risk they are taking when they hop in a car. Ozzy? Uh, yes, I uh, yes. <laughs> Pat Murphy, James Bond would never let a stranger drive his Tesla or BMW. False. False. <laughs> really? What if she was gorgeous? Yeah. Depends on who she was. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Pat Murphy, uh, have you ridden in, on Muni in the past week? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Joe Rodriguez Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald Rodriguez, uh, conversations with Uber and Lyft drivers are more interesting than conversations with cabbies. True or false? <laughs> false. Only, I mean, true, true only because um, uh, taxi drivers describe about Uber like half the time. <laughs> oh, taxi driver? Yeah, yes. okay. Uh, also for Joe, self-driving cars will put Uber, Lyft, and taxi drivers out of work. Oh, yes. I was just at a uh, Google uh, talk on that over the weekend. So there's a common concern there. With, and, and Chucky Bayadi, uh, many taxi drivers know the city better than they know their manners. True or false? Absolutely right. <laughs> you heard it here. Um, also for Chucky, uh, taxi companies improved their customer service only when they had to. Well, uh, the customer service, it's uh, by the driver himself. Not really by the company, because you get the car from the company that's right, and uh, the company provides you with the car or dispatch system, the monitor, meter, everything. But the real customer service is face-to-face uh, with the public, with uh, people who's coming from different country or different city to our uh, city, and the first person who meet, they meet is a taxi driver. If you're just joining us, we're talking about getting around a crowded city in the hot era of climate change at Climate One. Our guests are Chakib Ayadi, board member of the San Francisco Taxi Workers Alliance, Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez, a reporter with the San Francisco Examiner, Pad Murphy with Get Around, and Ozzy Arce is a Lyft driver. Let's go to our audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Oh, thank you. Um, I had a question regarding the um, the medallions because the taxis used to have, I think, it was a, a quarter million dollar medallion fee, and now it seems to be rendered useless by Lyft and uh, Uber and, and Sidecar. So, what is the city doing to recover those tax taxes that are lost? And and to maybe recompense the taxi companies and taxi drivers who own, you know, paid a lot of money for these medallions, and they're now 
basically worthless. Interesting, Chucky. I mean, those medallions, very valuable. Are they worthless now? And I think the question well, was... Well, that's correct. Do? Those medallions are very valuable uh, now. Well, there is a lot of people that are trying to sell their medallions they own. And uh, a lot of people, they're going out of business. And, uh, well, uh, from the city, there is help, but... Uh, they can do better always, and there is a waiver from the A card payment that we have. And uh, well, there is always way for improvement and help from the city, because uh, those taxi drivers, their income have cut to 40 percent now, and a lot of people they're losing their life and their uh, work, their jobs, and their money. That's tough. Uh, Joe Rodriguez, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, a, it's another example that, that taxi drivers would point to uh, as, as the divide between uh, the, the, un, the kind of uneven playing field between these ride-hail apps and taxis. I mean, you pay for a medallion or you rent or lease a medallion in order to drive a taxi, whereas you just download an app and just in a few days or a week or so, you're driving for Uber and Lyft. I mean, you're going to see one thing proliferate where another one does not when you have a situation like that. Well... Uh, I want to add to that, uh, other than the unfair playing field uh, while competing with Uber and Lyft, well, there is a difference here because we are a professional driver, we're licensed, we have the proper insurance. So you can see that there is like, it's, it's not the same, uh, same service that we're doing because, well, I'm a professional Uber driver or Lyft driver. He cannot compete with me because I know my way around. I can get you there faster. And especially the taxi industry now is the greenest fleet in the history or in all over the United States. Uh, 90% of the taxi, they are green now. They're hybrid. And, uh, well, they are new cars, most of them. They're required by law to be, uh, like, not over three years. Taxi drivers definitely know where they're going better than Uber and Lyft drivers. Let's have our next question. I wonder if we're missing a distinction that San Francisco may have less car owners but more cars. If Uber claims 20,000 cars and Lyft claims 10, and that doesn't even count sidecar, every day there's 30,000 cars circling in San Francisco and neighborhoods, people coming from Nevada to drive them, people coming from the East Bay to drive them. In 2012, we weren't even in the 25th most uh, air-polluted cities. As of this year, we're seventh. Uh, we're the second most congested. That wasn't true a few years ago. Obviously, we have more cars in the city, even if they're not owned by San Franciscans. Joe? Yeah, I mean, you know, the population has been booming, too. You have to take that into account. But you also have to take into account where the cars are. I mean, if you look at where Uber and Lyft drivers generally congregate, it is in the already most densest areas. You're getting them around downtown. You're getting them around south of Market. Uh, you're getting them around the Mission a lot. To some extent, the Marina. They are, for the most part, congregating where things are already congested, and that's where they're going because that's where the the density and the fares are. Um, right now, they're in a battle with the Cal uh, the ride hail apps. Uber and Lyft are in a battle with the uh, Public Utilities Commission of the state about whether or not they should be able to release data about where their cars are. The state is interested to know not just about congestion, but also about are communities of color being redlined? Will they answer a hail in, in uh, the Bayview? Are taxis answering a, a hail in the Bayview? They want to know this, and for that they need the data, and that's a struggle that's happening right now. Next question, welcome. Uh, I'm a cab driver in San Francisco. I see the, the congestion reaching 
enormous levels. Uh, passengers ask me all the time if Uber and Lyft affect my business, and my, my answer is this, that uh, they're not affecting my business because I'm a good cab driver. They're just in my way. Now, uh, being that there is uh, only about 2,000 taxis in San Francisco, and we've got nearly 10 times as many, both Uber, Lyft, and other app services, right now in San Francisco, you can get everything from medical weed to, uh, you know, booze delivered in under 15 minutes, and all via an app. Now, that requires drivers to get that done. So if they're contributing nearly, you know, 2 million tons of CO2 to the air every year in San Francisco alone, how does that positively affect our city? First of all, I didn't know you could get booze delivered in 15 minutes. Thanks for that. I was, okay. All right, good news. Okay. <laughs> well, one of the interesting things that you have when you have this proliferation of a lot of um, new drivers, so, so one of the benefits Uber and Lyft will tout is that anyone can just drive a few extra hours in their week and make a few extra bucks. A teacher can. Uh, a, a store clerk can. But the, the trade-off you get when you get someone who's only driving a few hours every week is you get someone who does, doesn't necessarily have that level of experience or training. Um, the training for Uber and Lyft usually consists mostly of videos. Lyft does offer some Lyft mentors, which is kind of a step up from Uber's offering, people who will actually take you out and teach you how to do what you need to do. But uh, Uber, for the most part, just has kind of videos online, whereas the taxis provide uh, about uh, a day's worth or a week's worth of training, depending on what training you're getting. So what you're seeing, and any cop who you're talking to off the record will tell you is, oh, yeah, man, they're pulling in over here, they're pulling in over there, they're double parking here, they're double parking there. As anyone who knows about the city's fragile uh, 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 system of roads can tell you is even one stalled car in a lane, a right turn lane, can make all this congestion. It ripples. It has an effect over the entire city and congestion. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. All new cabs have had to have been either hybrid or CNG since 2012. Now, Uber and Lyft don't have to wait for the city to require that. Do they have any plans, and how soon are they planning on making all their vehicles hybrid or CNG? Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez, I'm not sure if you know those, but you... I don't know about Uber or Lyft's plans for, for hybrid vehicles, but what I do know is that their, their requirements for vehicles are getting stricter all the time. They're asking for newer vehicles. Those newer vehicles tend to be more fuel efficient. So that is a plus of them asking for newer and nicer vehicles and more upkept vehicles. Um, but there's also a, a requirement that, that they're battling right now um, to uh, perhaps uh, require vehicles that have less road wear and tear, that are getting more uh, stringent inspections, including smog inspections and other types of inspections. And they're, they're currently in talks about how strict to make those inspections, which can affect that as well. Quickly, one last question, very quickly. Uh, I use a lot of different uh, transportation in the city, uh, and I think it's important to have a viable taxi industry, but a lot of times I find the vehicle quality, newer vehicles, quality of the drivers of the uh, ride hail services are better. Not always, but sometimes. And I think it has a lot to do with uh, drivers getting reviewed and uh, they're concerned about the reviews. And my question is, uh, is there any uh, strategy to improve value, improve quality, lower prices, something that would make taxis more competitive? Tee up flywheel, Chuck Eve. Well, that, that's, a, that's a good question. And, uh, well, as far as quality, 
you have professional driver who's properly licensed and properly insured, so you are completely safe when you ride in a cab. Other than Uber, the driver doesn't know how to get around. He's not uh, secure and he's not properly licensed, he's not properly insured. And uh, we have the app, and you can download a new phone called Flywheel. We are a professional driver, and the candy or chocolate, that's not a customer service. <laughs> Thank you, Chakib Ayadi. Uh, Chakib Ayadi is a board member of the San Francisco Taxi Workers Alliance. Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez is a reporter with the San Francisco Examiner. Pat Murphy is head of business development, as you just heard, at uh, Get Around. And Ozzy Arce is a driver with Lyft. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming and listening to Climate One today. <laughs> Wealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.